Well, hello and welcome to the Called Out Cafe podcast. I'm your host, Doug Hooley. The current series we're on is titled The Biblical Worldview of the Spirit Realm. This is episode number 16 in that series, and the topic today is that of what Jesus' current state is, according to the Bible. Just as a quick reminder, if you're interested, our new two-part video on the biblical history of the spirit realm is available to watch on our Doug Hooley Ministries YouTube channel. Also, there's only one episode after this one remaining in this series, so make sure you stick around until the end if you want to know where we'll be going from here. Well, I'm starting off this podcast this week with what might seem like stating the obvious about Jesus' current state, to many of you anyway. However, not all followers of Jesus are on the same page about Jesus. (laughs) Many smart people have many different opinions about where Jesus is today, what he's doing, and his abilities. That might come as a surprise to some of you. For example, some Christians don't believe heaven is a real place. That usually goes along with the idea that our spirits don't continue after we die. They either go into a state of something like sleep, you know, soul sleep, you've probably heard of that, or they're reduced to being a memory in the mind of God, who will bring those memories back to life one day. I'll talk about all of that stuff in the next and final episode in this series, but for now, I've never heard a good answer for this question if all of that is true. Where is Jesus right now? His friends watched him disappear up into the sky. If there's no spiritual realm and no heaven, is Jesus just floating around alone somewhere up in outer space right now? Some don't want the spirit realm to be real so bad that they've speculated that maybe Jesus is secretly hiding somewhere on the earth right now. Well, the truth is, they just don't have a good answer if they don't want to believe that the spirit realm does not exist. Secondly, some believe Jesus was God in the flesh, and he forever will only be God in the flesh, even if that flesh is now immortal. They believe that Jesus remains limited in his abilities like humans, and that if we were to meet him today, He wouldn't even know our names without being introduced first. And he wouldn't understand us unless we were speaking his native Aramaic language to him. So, because we're not all on the same page, I thought I would talk about what the pages of the Bible tell us about what's going on with Jesus right now. Where is Jesus now? What's he like? What are his capabilities? What will follow in this podcast are a few scriptures that give us some information on this topic. Please notice how active Jesus has to be for any of these scriptures to be taken seriously. He's not just sitting on a throne. (laughs) He's not just in some suspended state somewhere, floating around in the icy cold vacuum of space. And he is clearly no longer just a man. First, Regarding Jesus' current authority in his own words, after Jesus had been taken captive, he was taken before an assembly of chief priests, scribes, and elders. That's where the following interaction took place. I'm going to read this from Luke chapter 22, verses 67 to 69. 
If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. God the Father's throne is in the heavenly, unseen, supernatural realm. It's been seen there by the Apostle John, the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Jesus is there, in heaven, sitting at his Father's right hand. John saw Jesus in heaven in his vision, yes, in the form of a lamb. Nevertheless, it was Jesus in heaven. The word translated as sit in the Greek is kathomenos. Kathomenos does not necessarily mean to be literally sitting down. It can mean to dwell somewhere, reside, or remain. I tend to think that Jesus is not literally sitting down constantly at the right hand of the Father, as though Jesus never stands, even for a moment. Well, secondly, the little word, the word that follows kathomenos in the Greek is ek. Ek usually is translated as out or out of or coming from someplace, denotes a place of origin. The place of origin, like before I go on, the exit, you know, to leave, to go out. Uh, The place of origin is literally the right hand of the power of God. This verse should be more accurately translated as something like, But from now on, the Son of Man shall remain out of the right hand of God's power, or in the right hand of God's power. His power comes out of God's right hand. This denotes that Jesus' authority and power will forever remain emanating from God the Father's strong, dominant right hand. I'm sure both of his hands are dominant, but uh, the idea to humans is that your right hand is the strong, dominant hand. That's what I believe the takeaway is on this passage. I'm sure when Jesus does sit down, (laughs) it is at his rightful place at the right hand of his Father. But whether he's seated there or not, he forever dwells in the authority and power that comes out of God's strong right hand. The Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans adds information as to one of the things that Jesus is doing while he is at the right hand of God. He's acting in his role as our high priest. This is Romans chapter 8, 33 to 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The word translated as interceding was used in the ancient world in the context of approaching the king on behalf of someone else. Jesus is acting as our advocate. There are none more qualified to do this. Next, obviously not only existing in the mind of God, but rather very conscious and doing his job, Jesus has been placed in authority over the heavenly host. In speaking of Jesus, this is what the Apostle Peter has to say in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, 
authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus isn't in training on how to run a kingdom someday. By the time Jesus left this earth the first time, he was fully credentialed to be this earth's Messiah and King. Everything has now been placed in his charge, right now. Although Jesus possesses the authority over all the host of heaven, he doesn't always use it. He will not ultimately use that authority by putting all of his spiritual enemies under his feet until the preordained time to do so sometime in the future at his return. Sometimes divine will is accomplished by restraining. Other times it's accomplished by allowing things to go on somewhat unrestrained. All according to God's will. One thing is for sure, Jesus is in control and there are none higher than him, save his Father. Then in Jesus' spare time, something else he does. His father gave him the responsibility of upholding all things, some translations say the universe, by the power of his word. Hebrews 1, 3-4 tells us this. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's from the ESV. Existing as the radiance of the glory of God and being the exact imprint of God's nature are things no normal human can claim. Jesus is no longer any normal mortal human subject to our physical laws and limitations. After he accomplished his earthly work of making purification for sins by dying in our place, Scripture tells us that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Well, one of the things he does besides intercede on our behalf is upholding all things, whatever that means. I think that thinking about... (laughs) Great, now I have to think about thinking. Anyway... Thinking about what that means for a bit is so worthwhile. Some translations, such as the ESV, translate the word pantes as universe. Well, pantes literally means all, as in all things. Well, all things does include everything in the universe. However, I prefer the all things translation, which you'll find in the King James Version, and I'm not advocating for the King James Version, but in this case, I think they do a good job with it. Anyway, I prefer the all things translation because some may limit the universe to the physical realm. All things includes both realms of creation, both the physical and spiritual realms. When I think of what kind of power and authority it takes to hold all things together, I have to believe it's the same power and authority that God the Father possesses. Jesus wields the power and authority of Yahweh, the creator of the universe, who created all things through and for Jesus. Other scriptures stating Jesus is sitting, or standing, <laughs> or remaining at the right hand of God the Father include Colossians 3.1, Psalms 110.1, Hebrews 12.2, Matthew 26.64, 
Acts 2.33, and Mark 6.19. Those are just examples. There's numerous others. Again, this is not to say Jesus is always occupying the throne next to the Most Highs. It's to say that he's been granted the same authority over all creation, both realms, just as his father, Yahweh, has authority over all creation. Unlike the other created sons of God, which are of the heavenly host, although Jesus will always remain subject to the Father, he truly is considered as being the Most High God by every creature, including those sons of God and the heavenly host, every creature in the heavens. Jesus, being born absolutely human, may have been limited on earth to his human capabilities and whatever supernatural ability granted to him by his father at the time, but now he is clearly not limited by those abilities. Colossians 2 verses 8 to 11 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The fullness of deity dwells in Jesus, not parts of it. The fullness of the deity would seem to include the transcendent nature of God. Think of all the attributes of God's nature. He's infinite, eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, and all-powerful or sovereign. Whereas at one time no one knew the day or hour of his return to this earth, save God the Father, now Jesus, in whom the whole fullness of the deity dwells, must know. We see from this Colossians 2 passage what it is that competes with the knowledge or truth presented in Scripture that Jesus wants to inform us about and inform our opinions with. It's what Paul calls philosophy and empty deceit that's a product of human tradition and the elemental spirits of this world. The elemental spirits of the world is not easy to understand if you don't know the background information. Well, in the ancient world, science was weird. <laughs> Anything in nature could be explained by the interactions of the four elements, earth, water, air, and fire. These four elements each had spiritual or elemental beings associated with them, like gnomes and salamanders. <laughs> by Paul referring to the elemental spirits, he was referring to the science of his day, scientific explanations. Please be careful with this. <laughs> but he, Paul, was saying, don't rely on science when it conflicts with the truth of Jesus. Well, while on earth, Jesus could, at least at times, discern what was in men's hearts. Now, it's a full-time capability. Appearing to the Apostle John and quoting Jeremiah 17.10, Jesus said the following as recorded in Revelation 2, verse 23. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your work deserves. 
The part of that verse that quotes Jeremiah is, I am he who searches mind and heart. One of the key points of the first three chapters of Revelation is to show how in tune and aware Jesus is of what's going on among his ecclesias. But not only knows what's going on with local gatherings of ecclesias, or what you might know better as the churches, but he knows us as individuals. Jesus not only knows our names, in his now glorified state, he informs us that he knows everything going on inside our heads. He searches them. It doesn't matter that he only spoke Aramaic and a smattering of Latin and maybe a little bit of Greek when he was on the earth. To read every human mind, he must understand all languages. During his revelation to the Apostle John, as recorded in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus makes it clear that he is omniscient. He is completely aware of all the details going on with his ecclesia. And according to the same passage, Jesus can give to each of his own whatever it is that they deserve. He knows what we deserve because he's watching and completely aware of our circumstances. And while he's watching, he's also searching our minds for our motivations. Man, what a thought. I am not one to ask anybody to feel guilty, right? But as for me, and I understand grace. I understand that Jesus did it all and there's nothing left for me to do and that there is no condemnation, right? Not everything is, is uh, profitable. You know, all of, all of that. I get all of that. But I do not <laughs> envy Jesus at all having to look into my mind and at my motivations. I just can't help, even though I'm forgiven, and I know I can't help but feel like I owe Jesus a big apology. Anyway, not to dwell on that anymore. Back to what we're talking about. At some point after Jesus ascended to heaven, he prepared a place for his followers. John 14, 2-4 tells us this. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This preparing a place may be an ongoing task, or it may be something that he quickly accomplished. It's a little bit of a rabbit trail from the topic of Jesus' current state, but what Jesus meant by preparing a place for us is an interesting topic. There's a lot to say about it. What's in store for us in the next age after Jesus returns, looks pretty diverse in what we may be doing. Everything from serving as regional authorities over regions of the earth where we act in the role of judges, administrators, priests, and representatives of the king, to serving God in his temple. What I think Jesus meant by preparing a place for us is referring to far more than building us an apartment or furnishing us a home in heaven. I think he's talking about our place. He's preparing a place, our place in his organization or body or ecclesia. And I think most of the preparation has to do with preparing us to fit into that exact place that he's going to put us.
Anyway, Jesus, he's a busy guy. When you picture Jesus in your mind's eye, what is it you see? We all have our images our minds go to. Maybe depending on when we think of him and under what circumstances. Like it's probably one thing at Christmas, another thing at Easter, another thing when we need help, another thing when we're picturing, emulating him and being more Jesus-like, right? The Apostle John, of course, actually got to see Jesus in his glorified post-ascension-to-heaven form. Based on Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, Jesus had eyes like pools of fire, feet as burnished bronze, hair white like wool. His voice sounded like rushing water. His face was radiant like the sun. He's called the Word of God. He called himself the first and the last and the living one. I'm of the biblical interpretation school of thought that John is simply describing what he saw. However, Jesus's appearance may have symbolized a few different things. But if that's true, one of those things is certainly that the Son of God is no longer any ordinary human being. Unlike his time on earth, Jesus has no limits. Whatever his temporal status on earth was, if the Bible is to be trusted, it's no longer the same now. What is the so what of all this information about Jesus' interaction with the spirit realm and his current state today? I'm not saying this to be belittling at all, but frankly, if you don't know the answer to that question, I can't begin to tell you or explain it to you. I will say that without knowing any of this information regarding the non-physical realm of creation and how Jesus interacted with it and still interacts with it, it is still possible for someone to understand the simple gospel message. However, the person who doesn't know and understand what's taken place in the unseen realm of the cosmos since the beginning of time, according to the Bible, is missing out on so much else of what Jesus has accomplished. The depths of the good news goes on and on, far beyond our finite ability to observe it. Now, since there's only one more episode in this current series remaining, two at most, I told you I'd talk a little bit about what I plan to talk about next in the podcast. As I've mentioned a few times now, I've been working on a book for almost five years. The working title of that book is Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. Sounds scary, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I've finished my first draft of the book, and I'm now in the early stages of editing it for content. Part of that means cutting out roughly 250 pages of the currently 650-page rough draft. Nobody will read that long of a book. The approach that I've taken with this book is really, really ambitious. It's like several books in one. I've thought about splitting it up a few times, but I think that it needs to go together. Well, in the end, in the book, I'm pointing out that what we know as the capital C church today, what's supposed to be or represent the universal or worldwide body of Christ that's typically referred to as the church is really 
a man-made counterfeit of what Jesus called the ecclesia, which translates as the called out ones. Ha, huh, called out cafe, I get it. Anyway, the ecclesia consists of a group of elect individuals who are both dead and living that make up Jesus' chosen eternal people. The headquarters of that group of people is where the head of that group currently is, in heaven. It is not an earth-based organization. Secondly, the book addresses the lowercase c church, the local man-made institutions which represent 35,000 to 45,000 different denominations and rites which exist on this earth today all of which have their own deeply held traditions and beliefs about Jesus. I contend that these institutions, whether they're Roman Catholic or Evangelical Protestant in nature, are nowhere near what's represented in Scripture that they should be. Well, how I demonstrate this is by conducting a brief survey of the New Testament regarding the things that directly pertain to Jesus' ecclesia what the ecclesia is based on, and what it's supposed to be doing. It's easy to see after this survey that what we see today going on in local churches is mostly based on 2,000 years of tradition and not the Bible. So the next section of the book is on church history. Many, many books on church history have been written, but mostly by apologists who are trying to make a case for how great the church is. Although there have been many church histories written, I don't believe there's ever been a history of Jesus' ecclesia written. The church does not represent Jesus' ecclesia. The church has been responsible for countless terrible things that have taken place. By the time one's done reading the very unapologetic, no-punches-pulled church history that I've written, there can be no doubt that what we know as the capital C Church can possibly represent Jesus. The survey of history also explains so many of the traditions that we have in local bodies of believers which are completely unbiblical or even anti-biblical. Anti-biblical meaning that they are actually contrary to what Scripture is trying to tell us. Then, after that, that history, the final section of the book, I pull things together regarding the lessons learned from history and go back to what the Bible says about what the local ecclesias should be accomplishing while we await the return of Jesus. It's really simple, and I'll just tell you now, it comes down to faith, hope, and love. The only reason or basis authentic followers of Jesus are associated with one another as people who have been called out from the rest in this world is their faith in Jesus, that he's the Messiah and the Son of God, and the hope in what he said, the hope of his coming and what he promised. But beyond this, Jesus is clear in his commandment that until he returns, those who are among his ecclesia are to love one another. These are the three principles that are repeated throughout the New Testament. In every New Testament book, it's the common denominator. They may get applied in different ways in the letters that make up the New Testament as Paul and the others address different problems that came up. 
But this faith in Jesus, hope in his words, and love for one another within the ecclesia is what the reason, the purpose, and the work of the called out ones can be boiled down to. All the rest of what takes place in the church today is subject to question and doubt. There's so much to say about all of that. So much to justify. Well, I also pull out a few observations regarding how the church has forgotten a few things since its beginning. For example, how the Enlightenment essentially canceled the church's biblical worldview of the spirit realm. Even bigger than that is how the church has lost its love of the truth. And note I say the church as opposed to the ecclesia. Two different things. After about a year of working on this book that I'm still working on now, this loss of the love of truth really started bugging me. I'd figured out that departing from truth was the key issue that had caused every other issue, and that until such time as the elect of God are prepared to wholeheartedly seek the truth once again, regardless of where that leads in relation to the traditions we've come to follow, that there can be no positive steps made in setting aside unbiblical practices. In going deeper into this issue, it became clear that so many people who are calling themselves Christians have set aside biblical truth to such an extent, this is upsetting, that it calls into question if the Jesus they are worshiping is the Jesus of the Bible at all. I'm not just talking about the major offshoot religions that you can think of, the quasi-Christian religions. I'm talking about what people may think of, in some cases, as mainstream. Well, tying that statement into what this current podcast series has been about, I have to say that I think it's reasonable to think that there are demonic beings lined up who would love to change their name to Jesus so they could put their own slight twist on Christianity just enough to turn the gospel into a false gospel, complete with a false Jesus to mislead as many people as they can. So, I determined before I could go on writing the book I am now editing that I needed to first write another book which addressed this issue. That book is called False Christian Gods, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. It's that book that unless God somehow changes my mind in the next couple of weeks or takes me home, that the next series will be based on. This is part of how Dr. Jack Crabtree, who wrote the foreword for this book, explains the issue that the podcast and the book, False Christian Gods, deals with. He wrote, The issue at stake in 1 John is which Jesus one is to follow, the Jesus proclaimed by the apostles or the Jesus being proclaimed by the false teachers who are influencing these early Christians. John recognizes that to follow the wrong Jesus is tantamount to idolatry. For to believe in the wrong Jesus ultimately involves embracing a God who is not God. So, John warns his readers, It's not enough to simply believe in Jesus. The one who will receive God's mercy is the one who believes in and follows the true Jesus, the Jesus proclaimed by John and the Apostles. And to follow the true Jesus means to believe in and embrace the truth that he taught. There are many false Jesus options out there today that are misleading many Christians. 
In this age of postmodernism, new Jesuses are being developed every day by those who are imposing their own truth on Scripture. I hope you'll consider joining me in this new series, which will likely begin in the episode after the next one. Speaking of that, the topic of the next episode will be that of what happens to us when we die regarding the spirit realm. But for now, that's all I got for you. So until next time, may God bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Mm-hmm.